The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hi, I'm Allison Frankel, and this is On the Case. I'd also like to ask you to bring a major lawsuit against the drug companies on opioids. Some states have done it, but I'd like a lawsuit to be brought against uh, these companies that are uh, really sending opioids at a level that uh, it shouldn't be happening. So highly addictive. People go into a hospital with a broken arm. They come out there a drug addict. More than 72,000 Americans died of drug overdoses in 2017, a rate of one death every eight minutes. Most of those overdoses involved opioids, heroin, synthetic opiates like fentanyl, and prescription painkillers like oxycodone or hydrocodone. Those deaths are the most tragic toll of the opioid epidemic but the crisis can also be measured in dollars. The White House Council of Economic Advisors estimated last November that opioid misuse was costing this country upwards of half a trillion, yes, trillion dollars a year in lost economic value. That's almost 3% of the gross domestic product. My guest today thinks the pharmaceutical industry should bear some of the costs for an epidemic that he believes drug companies sparked. Paul Hanley is one of the lead lawyers in a huge consolidated case in federal court in Cleveland, Ohio. As a partner at Simmons Hanley Conroy, he's a private lawyer, like all of the lawyers on his side of the case. He and his colleagues represent hundreds of cities and counties suing opioid makers, drug distributors, and even pharmacies. The cities and counties contend that these big corporations cooked up a conspiracy to lie about how addictive prescription pharmaceuticals are. They blame drug companies and distributors for deceptively whipping up massive demand for addictive drugs, all for the sake of billions of dollars in profits. The defendants say they were meeting a legitimate need for painkillers with products approved and regulated by the Food and Drug Administration and available only with a doctor's prescription. They also say their actions are too remote from the city's claims for them to be held responsible. Paul's case, as we'll discuss, just got a big boost when a federal judge okayed most of the legal theories of the cities and counties he represents. The first thing I want to ask is what the goal of this litigation is. You've got these hundreds of cities and counties suing a a panoply of companies. What are you hoping this litigation accomplishes? Well, as you alluded to in your introduction, um, the cities and counties in the United States have um, suffered severely from the opioid epidemic, and they have uh, spent literally billions of dollars collectively uh, in responding to this epidemic. Um, The litigation has three goals. One is to change conduct, and that is the conduct of the companies that brought this uh, crisis to us. Um, The second is to force the companies to make a long-term commitment to these cities and counties and other communities uh, to reverse the damage that they have done by funding things like rehab programs and medical education programs and enhanced law law enforcement uh, programs and the like. And the third goal is to uh, obtain reimbursement, if you will, for those billions of dollars that the counties and cities have been paying over the last decade 
uh, to deal with this crisis. What, where have the cities and counties come up with money to, you know, as the cost of the crisis has burgeoned, what, what has the money come at the expense of? Well, this is one of the great tragedies of the epidemic, and that is that cities and counties are forced to move funds dedicated to other uh, programs, such as education, um, such as uh, health care treatment for both employees of the uh, counties and cities and for the general population at large. So the result is that um, all of the other things that we expect our cities and counties to provide its citizens um, have suffered and, ha and are diminished in their ability uh, to provide those kinds of services. So in a way, the litigation is to sort of recalibrate the correct balance of, of expenditures for cities and counties to make up for, for the lost money in education and and other social services that that has had to go to opioids that that's exactly right think of it this way suppose that these companies um, invented a hurricane machine that could cause hurricanes in whatever part of the country that they wanted and suppose further that they um, uh, uh, made this hurricane machine descend upon a small county in Texas well, all of that damage that ultimately uh, comes of that is, the, is caused by the hurricane machine, which is uh, the responsibility of the defendants. So we view the epidemic as a massive hurricane causing all kinds of damage, and these companies now need to come into the communities and clean up that mess. It's a good analogy, except I think what the defendants would say is, look, we made a legal product. Our product it was a, a highly regulated painkiller, the most intense scrutiny of any pharmaceutical product sold by the FDA. You're coming in and maybe there was some wrongdoing way down the chain, maybe doctors overprescribed. So what are the theories that you're attempting to hold these, these companies liable under? Yes, and uh, as you recognize, we, we of course admit that this is a, these are regulated products, regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, but the analysis does not end there. Just because a product is regulated by the Food and Drug Administration does not mean that you as a manufacturer or you as a distributor can make false representations about the product and, and get away scot-free. The essence of our claims against these defendants are essentially twofold. The theory of liability is principally they misrepresented the risks of addiction with respect to the administration of these drugs for long-term chronic pain. They told the medical community that they had scientific studies that supported the notion that you could give these pills to chronic pain patients long-term without a risk of addiction. Um, that was false, and that resulted in the proliferation of excess prescriptions for the drug, and that in turn gets us to the theory against the distributors. As the distributors began to earn more and more money because there were more and more prescriptions being written uh, for these drugs, the distributors turned a blind eye to the increase in orders they were receiving from, for example, a community with 5,000 residents that was suddenly 
um, orders were in excess of a million pills for a community of 5,000 residents. So the distributors simply turned a blind eye uh, in the interests of their own bottom line to what was happening in the community. And so the theory against the distributors is, is slightly different. It is you did not do what you should have done, which is to report these excess orders uh, to the Drug Enforcement Administration. Um, and uh, therefore, you are responsible along with the manufacturers. I'm not, I, I'm not sure everyone understands, and I certainly didn't understand before I started looking, looking hard at this case, exactly how drug distribution works. I mean, I always assumed, you know, Merck or, or Pfizer was shipping drugs directly to pharmacies, but that isn't how it works, and that's a big part of your case, right? Yes, that's correct. In a nutshell, the manufacturer sells the pills to the distributor. The distributor sells the pills to the pharmacy. The pharmacy sells the pills to the patient. Um, but there is this, uh, this universe of, of distributors in the second step of what I just described. Um, and they, uh, first of all, make billions of dollars in, in, in profits from the purchase from the manufacturers and then the subsequent sale to the, to the pharmacies. But as, and that's, that's all okay. We live in a capitalist society. However, uh, being a distributor of a controlled substance brings with it legal obligations that these companies fail to abide by. Where do the obligations come from? Well, they, they emanate from the um, Controlled Substances Act of 1970, which is a federal uh, statute, which, among other things, requires that if you are distributing controlled substances, and these pills are controlled substances, you have an obligation as and when you observe what are called suspicious orders to report that uh, circumstance to the DEA. And with few exceptions, we have discovered in the course of this litigation that these companies simply pretended that there was no such obligation. So they knew these reports were coming in and that they were suspicious, but they didn't they didn't do what they were supposed to do? Yeah, they knew that the orders were suspicious because they're monitoring their bottom line. They're looking at, well, how are we doing this month? Did we sell more pills than last month? And so distributors are the ones who receive from the pharmacies in small town West Virginia, for example, the order. And if the order goes from 1,000 pills in April to 100,000 pills in May, that's something of a dramatic increase and should at least uh, raise a red flag. And indeed, they have an obligation to, when they see that sort of conduct, um, to notify the DEA. And, and you guys allege that the pharmaceutical companies weren't just sort of running television ads saying, oh, try this, try this new painkiller, it's not addicted. You, you allege a lot more than that in terms of their marketing activities, right? Oh, absolutely. So, uh, among other things, uh, the, uh, the manufacturers um, hired uh, uh, prominent physicians from around the country who they paid substantial sums of money, tens of thousands of dollars uh, to each physician, to go around the country and give speeches that um, promoted the use of oxycodone, which is 
one and a half times as powerful as morphine to be given to patients who had had root canals or sprained an ankle playing basketball on a Saturday. These physicians told family uh, practitioners throughout the country, don't worry that it's a controlled substance. It is safe. Your patient cannot get addicted as long as she is in pain. All of this was made up from whole cloth. There was no, I repeat, no scientific evidence for that claim. There wasn't then and there isn't today. And indeed today, of course, we have many, many studies that make quite clear that if you administer these drugs to patients, non-cancer, non-end-of-life patients for chronic pain, they will get addicted. And that's what happened here, and that is why we are facing the greatest public health epidemic since the flu pandemic of 1918, ironically, exactly 100 years ago. Hmm. Opponents of private litigation uh, to, to remedy public problems would say, well, nobody got sued over, over the flu pandemic. Um, we've done extremely well. In fact, there is no, there's been no court anywhere in the nation that has sided with the defendants who have, in every one of the cases brought thus far, um, brought what's called a motion, a request that the judge throw the case out of court. Um, we are batting essentially 1,000 in, uh, in, in, the, in the litigation. And that includes in the big consolidated case. Yes, that's correct. Um, in the big consolidated case, we recently had a ruling effectively um, dismissing all of the arguments of the um, uh, of the of the companies, with with one exception that we do not regard as material uh, or or detrimental in any respect. If there there has been talk of some kind of global settlement, and I know you can't, you, the court has told you you can't talk about any specifics of settlement discussions, but if there were to be a settlement, would this be a settlement, do you think, of all of these cities, counties, states, uh, all wrapped up into one settlement? Um, that's hard to say, but but likely it would, it would um, have to be that. It's, it's very difficult to imagine a scenario where um, where the companies would be prepared to settle the cases one at a time or in a piecemeal fashion. History of these mass cases teaches that companies are never willing to um, settle, almost never willing to settle the cases a few at a time. They, they look for a global resolution. So that's certainly possible here. But because this litigation is so complex, the um, uh, the, the rules uh, that that we think have uh, have have been created over the years that relate to mass litigation may not necessarily um, uh, apply here because of the sheer complexity of the case. Because all of those other cases, as complex as they were, were no more no were not close in complexity to this litigation. And therefore, we're in, in uncharted waters to, 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 to a very significant extent. The White House estimated half a trillion dollars for one year 
in, in outlay from the opioid epidemic. I've heard numbers of a of trillion dollars in the decade before that. Can, can the defendants come anywhere close to affording a trillion dollar settlement, which would be four times what was the biggest settlement ever, the, the tobacco settlement of $250 billion? Um, an excellent question, and the answer to that is we really have no idea. Um, we, we are in uh, the discovery phase of litigation, which, as you know, involves um, uh, reviewing materials concerning the defendants. So we don't really know what the capacity of the defendants collectively to pay is. Um, but whatever it is, the, uh, the tobacco uh, uh, settlement is a very good example, which you brought up. Because there, as you know, that $250 billion was not paid in a lump sum, but instead uh, structured and paid over a period of, uh, as I recall, one to two decades. And so in, in this litigation, it, it's actually necessary that any resolution um, have a forward component of payment over a period of years because if, if folks stopped uh, taking opioids today all across the country, we still would be living with this epidemic for 10 to 20 years because we have an entire population of addicted uh, patients. Um, so, you know, it's possible that uh, that a, a, a program paying over over a couple of decades is something uh, that these companies could afford at a very high level. But again, I, I, we're, we're, we're at such an early stage, it's very hard to know. But presumably, a company would have to fund rehab over a decade or maintenance for addicted people over a decade? or Yes. Um, th those are the specific kinds of things that we actually ask for in the complaints that we have filed. We are looking for commitment, for example, or a court order um, compelling these defendants to pay on a forward uh, uh, prospective basis the cost of rehab for the citizens and uh, citizens of those communities. Uh, we are asking for uh, p payment for Narcan, uh, naloxone, which is the antidote to overdoses that saves lives. We're looking for a long-term commitment to medical education because part of the problem here is that these doctors who uh, we were discussing a little while ago went out and persuaded physicians who, in their own education, really had no uh, proper education about the risks of, of opioids for chronic pain. We need, though, that, that mindset to be reversed, and that's going to involve uh, medical education. Okay. So um, we, a, a couple weeks ago, I had on a firearms industry lawyer to talk about litigation against uh, the gun industry. And his theme was this kind of industry-wide policing is the job of the government. It's not the job of private lawyers. We already have an FDA set up to, you know, make sure that drug companies are telling the truth about their products. Uh, why shouldn't we rely on the government to take care of 
you know, to take care of, of drugs that are, are being sold in ways that are not uh, consistent with what they've been approved for? Well, the, the federal government has, uh, has taken a number of steps uh, to, to try and deal with the epidemic, and, and all of those steps are to be commended. Um, but the problem is that the, the federal government itself and the FDA itself are of limited resources. And we have many, many other issues in our country um, that need attending to and need financing uh, other than the opioid epidemic. And therefore, th- we believe that private counsel bringing these kinds of lit- litigations can get a resolution much more quickly then can the federal government essentially put an end to the, to the opioid crisis. As you well know, the FDA is an organization uh, with limited resources, limited numbers of scientists. The FDA actually doesn't test any products. The testing is all done by the companies, and the FDA must rely on the good faith and the honesty of the companies um, to provide it with all of the relevant information. History teaches that the companies never provide the FDA with all of the relevant information. But we also have a Justice Department, right? When when it turns out a company isn't, uh, where is the Justice Department in the opioid epidemic? Well, the Justice Department has been extremely cooperative with the efforts of the cities, counties, and states to, um, to prosecute these claims. For example, the Justice Department has directed the DEA to provide the cities and counties and states with all of the data that DEA maintains about these suspicious orders that I've been, uh, you and I have been, di- have been discussing. But where, where has DOJ been for, you know, the 10 years this crisis has been, has been developing? Have they brought cases against manufacturers? Well, um, uh, about 10 years ago, the Department of Justice uh, brought a criminal case against Purdue Pharma, which is the inventor and uh, manufacturer of OxyContin, and, uh, and convicted Purdue and three of its top executives of criminal misbranding. That's essentially uh, a legal term for uh, making false statements about the drug. And the false statements were those we were talking about, that the drug was non-addictive if given to pain patients. Um, so so th- that was a very, very positive step. Uh, the, the fine that was exacted, I think, was uh, $634 million, and that was around 2007. That's when $634 million was real money. And, <laughs> it's still uh, real money. <laughs> apparently not. Maybe not compared to a trillion dollars. But. Well, but apparently, <laughs> Allison, apparently not to the drug companies. Yeah. And the reason that we know that is that the very company that paid that huge fine turned around and continued the same conduct. And then other companies, seeing the great increase in sales that the maker of OxyContin was achieving, jumped on the same bandwagon, adopted the same false uh, marketing claims, and, and, and now we are where we are. Now, over the course of that decade since, the Department of Justice has been active in investigations. Um, but again, the Department of Justice has somewhat limited resources, has many other problems uh, to, to deal with. Um, and so, we feel that the private litigation 
which is funded entirely by lawyers and law firms like myself and, and my firm, um, is a, a supplement to all of the good things that Department of Justice can do, that state attorneys general can do, uh, that state state prosecutors, district attorneys can do. Okay. How did private lawyers start to get into this? At, you know, uh, who came up with the idea, oh, you know, cities and counties have, have huge damages from this. Maybe they can bring a, a private lawsuit. Well, what, we, what we've heard is that uh, certain cities and counties starting around 2014 were hemorrhaging so much money that they looked around for some way uh, to try and uh, uh, find recompense for, for, these, for these costs and funding for the future. And apparently what they, what they did was they investigated whether there had been prior litigation. And in fact, there was prior litigation, not by cities and counties or states, but by private patients against, again, Purdue Pharma. And this relates to litigation that, that was brought by my firm and, and others in the early 2000s that resulted in us discovering evidence of criminal conduct, which we then turned over to the Department of Justice, and the Department of Justice then exacted that criminal conviction we were uh, discussing. So we have heard that around 2014, when cities and counties were saying, what are we going to do, um, that some of them discovered that there had been this successful effort 10 years earlier and decided to uh, contact private counsel to see whether private counsel would have an interest in pursuing the same sorts of theories, fraudulent marketing, mis misbranding, etc., but on b behalf of a different group of claimants. Not in the pro private users. Not users, but the, but the entities that actually are f paying for uh, the, the prescriptions and paying for the rehab and paying for the enhanced law enforcement necessary. And, and so around 2014, the first of the counties and city cases got uh, filed. And then, then that was followed beginning at the end of 2016 with, with essentially an avalanche of, of these city and county cases. There's been reporting on plaintiff's lawyers, you know, sort of plaintiff's lawyers meaning the lawyers who, who are representing cities and counties kind of going on the road to various city and county officials and, and in, in, in the separate state attorneys general litigation to, to state officials saying, you should get involved in this litigation, you should hire me to get involved in this litigation. And, um, you know, critics of private litigation say, oh, look, here are these people with a profit motive kind of pushing states and cities to sue, to, to bring private litigation against distributors and manufacturers. Yeah. Um, well, I am unaware of any lawyer or law firm which, without invitation, went out on the road and solicited clients because some would say that that's not ethically permitted. In the cases that I am aware of, which include the 250 or so cities and counties that I represent, my firm was invited by the city or county chief attorney uh, to come and make a presentation because 
the word got around once the very first cases, municipality cases, were filed in 2014. As you, you know, cities and counties are, are members of a variety of, of trade organizations, associations, and the, and the news of such a thing spread like wildfire. That resulted in open invitations to prominent plaintiff lawyers, lawyers who bring these kinds of cases, to come and make presentations. So I made probably 200 such presentations, but in each and every one I was invited. I did not uh, uh, contact any community um, that had not actually invited uh, me to, to, to contact them. Now, with respect to the issue of the profit motive, well, yes, private lawyers do, if they are successful, um, receive a percentage of the recovery. But the risks that the private bar takes in these kinds of cases are enormous because in each and every one of these city and county cases, the private attorneys representing these entities are funding 100% of the costs of the litigation. And indeed, if the litigation is a huge uh, failure, um, I'm, I'm unaware of any counsel in the nation whose contract provides that he or she can be paid back the costs. So we are at risk not only of not receiving a piece, a percentage of a recovery, we are also at risk to the tune of tens of millions of dollars of, uh, of ending up with our bank accounts depleted because we have funded these cases. How, how much has the consolidated litigation cost so far? Well, it's been ongoing now for um, uh, nine months, and I would estimate that uh, collectively across the nation, uh, the plaintiff's bar has, has spent something on the order of $20 million. Wow. And if it goes, there are a couple uh, sort of test trials set up in 2019. If it goes through those... How much more will it take? Another twenty million per year, I, I expect, is 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 what um, is is likely to to get spent. And that's that's money that the counties are not putting and cities are not putting up at all. Not a penny is coming from these governments. Not a penny. It all comes out of pockets like mine. <laughs> what about time? How how many lawyers are working on this for your side? So just in the federal cases, which as we discussed earlier are approximately 1,500 in number, um, we currently have nearly 300 lawyers working full-time. Now, those lawyers are being paid but not by the cities and counties. They're being paid by their own law firms. In other words, they work for salaries. Um, and, 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 but who's paying those salaries? Well, ultimately, it's lawyers like me and, and other lawyers of, of a senior stature who, who, who own or control these firms. So it's coming out of our, our pockets. But that is the extent of the commitment that we are making to these communities across the nation to right this terrible wrong what do you get at the other end? What are some of these contracts? Uh, you know, are, are these percentage fees of recoveries? Or is this in the tobacco litigation, for instance, um, the, the question of attorney's fees was left for after the rest of the litigation and was 
was a matter to be decided by independent arbitrators. What kind of arrangements do you guys have in these cases? Yes. Well, um, most of the individual contracts between counties and cities and law firms like my own do have a percentage. Um, I can't speak for other law firms, but our percentages are around 20 or 25 percent of, of, of the recovery. Um, but at the end of the day, those, those contracts may not have great significance, uh, among other reasons because, for example, one way that there could be a global resolution would be uh, by the use of what's called a class action. Uh, to essentially gather all the cases and, and put together a, a settlement vehicle. And in the class action context, at least in the federal cases, um, the rules require that the fees be uh, set by the judge. So the judge can completely disregard whatever contract I might have with you um, in that context. So the answer to your question is, no one knows where it's going to end up if, if indeed there is a, a positive resolution for these communities. Are you guys prepared for protests if, you know, if, if it's not a class action and, and these end up being, you know, a matter of private contract? Are, are you prepared to say, I'm going to take 25% of the recovery for, for this city that would otherwise be going to rehab programs and health care for, <laughs> that's a tough call, right? Well, sure. I mean, it raises, it, 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 it raises the issue of, well, you know, should there even be contingency fee litigation? And the answer to that, Allison, is if there were not, these cities and counties would not be able to sue these companies. These are the largest companies in the world, represented by the finest defense counsel in the world. This litigation costs a lot of money, and these communities don't have it. So if lawyers like me and my colleagues are willing to risk personal fortunes um, on this litigation, then at the end of the day, if we achieve what we are trying to achieve for our clients, isn't it only fair that we re receive some sort of compensation? And, and so that's the way we look at it. Now, are we prepared for the criticism we are always criticized, as you know, as you know, Allison. We are the lawyers that the Wall Street Journal loves to hate. For you, the bottom line is the system. The system needs private lawyers. Here we have a grievous wrong. We have we have cities and counties that have been forced through absolutely no fault of their own to divert billions of dollars uh, from, you know from social good to deal with with this crisis, who couldn't afford to hire lawyers on an hourly basis to seek uh, compensation for what they've spent, and otherwise, you know, couldn't handle through their own employees, you know, the rigors and expense of this litigation. So... Yes, that's absolutely correct. Once again, I think we can look to tobacco um, uh, for, for, for wisdom here. Recall that in tobacco cases, the litigation was brought entirely by private counsel working with state attorneys general, but the private counsel funded the tobacco litiga litigation again to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. And what was the result? 
a huge settlement, $250 billion going to the states for, among other things, educational programs about the hazards of tobacco. What was the result of that? Smoking rates are now down and lung cancer rates are now down compared to where they were in the 1990s before any of this happened. Once again, without private counsel willing to take those kinds of enormous risks, we would not be in the situation that we are in, which is a very good situation now with respect to tobacco. The gun industry was facing, you know, the same kind of onslaught of, of litigation that the pharmaceutical companies involved in opioid manufacturing and the, the drug distribution companies are facing now, in your cases, Congress stepped in and said, no more private lawsuits. Is that a, is that a possibility? And, and why should it not happen? Well, we certainly hope it will not happen. Um, uh, there has been no effort that we are aware of thus far within Congress itself. However, we do know that the uh, pharmaceutical industry is very active through the Chamber of Commerce on Capitol Hill in attempting to um, uh, push forth legislation that actually would eliminate most all drug litigation, all litigation involving uh, drugs approved by the FDA. Historically, that uh, uh, proposed legislation has not gone anywhere, but the efforts are uh, huge, uh, they, are, they are hugely funded, and they are relentless. And so we are very aware of what the chamber is doing, of what the pharmaceutical industry is doing in terms of lobbying in, in these areas, and we take steps to combat it through the use of our own um, uh, lobbying uh, efforts. Okay. And, the, and, and last question, the federal government's involvement. You mentioned that the Justice Department has been supportive, that, um, that they've, you know, they've, they've not blocked your way to DEA records, which, which has been helpful. Could the federal government step into your case? If they do, do they end up taking over the case? How would that even work? Well, um, as you know, the president himself uh, suggested to General Sessions that the United States join the litigation. Um, and if the United States joined, we think uh, it would be a good partner to the cities and counties and, 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 and states. Um, obviously, lots of, of resources. And it's noteworthy, if not ironic, um, that the president of the United States uh, has, has apparently embraced the concept of the opioid litigation. Um, but it's not the least surprising because the president, more than any other person in the nation, understands the power of civil litigation to compel, compel changes in conduct. As we know, the president, when he was in private business, was involved in thousands of litigations. And we don't know what the president is thinking vis-a-vis -vis opioids, but the notion of civil litigation is completely consistent with the president's understanding, better than anyone else, the power of civil litigation. Well, that seems like a good, a good place to end things. Thank you so much for being here, Paul. I feel like I really learned a lot. Thank you for having me. On the Case is a podcast by Reuters. If you'd like to hear more, visit Reuters.com slash 
Podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Allison Frankel.